0: Hello guys and gals, today's podcast is a special one because it is a full hour and 13 minutes of world-renowned self-experimenter Tim Ferriss, and perhaps unsurprisingly, it's also loaded with a multitude of great information, including topics like what Tim's leading blood biomarkers are that he focuses on optimizing, the importance of tracking glucose along with ketones to make sure you do not confuse non-nutritional ketosis with the real deal. Tim's personal experience beating Lyme disease and his insights on recovery, the origin and cause of Lyme hysteria, and how some of the symptoms of what is described as chronic Lyme disease may actually be caused by a disrupted gut microbiome from uninterrupted long-term use of antibiotics, what the minimum effective dose is when it comes to working out, and a little bit about Tim's workout routine, and much, much more. For your convenience you can also download a full transcript of the podcast at foundmyfitness.com forward slash tim transcript if you absolutely love this podcast please also consider letting me know one of the best ways you can do that is to leave a review on itunes possibly with comments or even suggestions for my next guest all of that said today's sponsor is well people like you you can check out my ongoing crowdfunding campaign at patreon dot com forward slash fitness where I continue to inch, thanks to many of you, inexorably to my next major milestone. For the insignificant price of a latte, you too can feel the satisfaction of having helped me make Found My Fitness happen. Without further ado, the podcast. Dr. Amada Patrick here. Today, I'm very excited to be sitting here with my friend, Tim Ferriss a notorious self-experimenter, a three-time New York Times bestselling author, an angel investor, startup advisor, and much, much, much more. So before we start, I really just want to say that I really enjoyed the last time you and I had a conversation about a year ago, I think, on your podcast. Oh my God micronutrients, aging, epigenetics, stem cells, um, all that stuff, super fun. So I'm very excited to have the opportunity to interview you on my podcast.
1: Yeah, I'm intimidated. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm looking forward to it. So.
0: Great. So we were, I, I kind of want to start off with the self-experimentation. Sure. And we were actually just having this interesting conversation that we stopped so that we could continue it, you know, live. And And that has to do with a little bit about the night you just had and what you're doing to... Recover from that night. You want to talk a little bit about?
1: Sure. that? Sure. So I had uh, like a lot of people on Saturday nights, a little more booze than intended or anticipated, and uh, we were talking about uh, mineral excretion. Right. And I was talking about some of my pregame tactics, whether that's you know consuming carbohydrates. I tend to drink the most booze on cheat day for that reason, because I'm retaining whatever it is. I guess four grams of water per gram of carbohydrate, something like that. So it helps to counteract the effects of uh, inhibition of vasopressin. That's how we got onto vasopressin because vasopressin is an antidiuretic hormone, which means uh, it prevents you from peeing or minimizes peeing. So it's used in children who bedwet past a certain age. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think they use desmopressin and I became, jumping around a little bit, but I became interested in vasopressin first because when I was in college, I was reading up on the smart drug literature at the time. And it was purported to be very effective for boosting short-term memory. So you would take hits in each nostril, study whatever you have to study, and then quickly scurry off to the test before it sort of evaporated. Right. And, uh, the, but then you had some very interesting comments yes. on vasopressin. So I did use vasopressin for a period of time, found the headaches and side effects ultimately just not worth it for me the way that I was using it. Uh, but uh, it is something that has kind of stuck with me when someone says, oh my God, I was at the bar and then all of a sudden I time travel and I was at Denny's, I'm like, aha, might have something to do with vasopressin because you just gave yourself sort of a reverse smart drug.
0: Very uh, interesting. Yeah. I'm familiar with vasopressin because it's also a, it's a hormone, it's a social hormone mm-hmm. and it's um, particularly important, it's kind of like the the counter to, or not the counter, It's the uh, male version of oxytocin. Okay. So, you know, in females, oxytocin is this, you know, notorious love hormone. I mean, you, when you, right. um, you know, produce oxytocin, you feel good, you bond, social right. bonding, things like that. Well, in males, vasopressin serves a similar role to oxytocin um, in females, and vasopressin is associated with um, pair bonding, and specifically with monogamy. So they've done studies in prairie voles. Where they actually genetically engineer them to not be able to respond to vasopressin, so they like engineer their vasopressin receptor right. to be non-responsive, and these prairie voles, which are monogamous, become polygamous, like that. <laughs> so it's very interesting. Um, also, they've done human studies where they've looked at gene polymorphisms, which are just variations in the sequence of DNA of a gene that changes the function. We all have various polymorphisms. Um, you're familiar with that, and so. There's a particular variety of this polymorphism in the vasopressin receptors that males have um, that are make them non less responsive to vasopressin. Mm-hmm. And these males are more likely to be either divorced or never been married, hmm. whereas males that don't have this polymorphism are more likely to be happily married. Surprise, surprise. So yeah, so alcohol <laughs> may actually, you know, there may be actually a mechanism through vasopressin that leads to... Um, Polygamy or being more promiscuous, I guess. Mm-hmm. So um, on the self experimentation topic, um, I, you know, you've been self experimenting for many years, mm-hmm. and I was wondering if throughout your years of experimentation, if there's three or four biomarkers. So you typically measure, you know, blood biomarkers routinely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If there's three or four really Important ones that you think are important and that you routinely measure, and if they have anything to do with performance or mental acuity or perhaps aging.
1: Yeah, there are a few that. Uh, well, there are many blood markers that I look at, and I had, I had a fun conversation with uh, Peter Tia mm-hmm. on uh, on the podcast not too long ago about this. Uh, but my markers, the markers that I'm following right now, are number one the my millimolar concentration of ketones so i have a device just on the counter over there precision extra device by abbott labs that allows me to use both uh both glucose strips and ketone strips uh, so i can look at my say fasting or waking fasting glucose level and then ketone level and and monitor that after certain types of say exercise where the ketone level can drop and so on and so forth because i've identified for myself and part of the reason i've you know fat in my my tea, is I operate best mentally at around 1.1 to 1.7 millimolars, and I only figured that out by tracking. Very interesting. And some people, for instance, perform much better the higher the concentration. The higher the concentration of ketones, the better they feel. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't fall in that camp, and I was having a conversation with a scientist a few days ago about this. And he said, well, really, and this is not a new observation, but your blood level of ketones can be gamed or increased in many different ways, right? So you could just eat a meal that's full of medium chain triglycerides mm-hmm. or eat a meal that's just full of fat in general, and you could spike your ketone levels. Uh, and that's not necessarily indicative of sort of an endogenous production of ketones. Mm-hmm. and uh, Or you could be fasting, um, for instance, in, like deep fasting after five or six or seven days. Uh, in in my particular case, uh, what well, I think you also want to look at, and this is true, a lot of very smart people like Pete, you know, Tia, uh, Dom D'Agostino, very very smart guy, Dominic, uh, would say likely that it also could be people. Some people utilize ketones better than others. Yes. So just because you have a high level of ketones doesn't mean you're necessarily doing a lot with it. And in my case, a high level of ketones. My hypothesis is, well, maybe past a certain point, my kind of machinery gets very inefficient. or gets damaged. So between 1.1 and 1.7, uh, my brain op- my brain functions at a level reminiscent of pre-Lyme, and that's a whole separate thing. Yes, you know, I, I got, got kind of knocked out later. of normal cognitive function for nine months due to severe Lyme disease. But when I am focused on at least a nominal amount of ketones, I feel like my old self. And so that, that's one. Other things that I focus on. Uh, or look at... I, there are some esoteric things that I play with every once in a while, but if you're looking at the routine levels, I'm going to look at, obviously, the sex hormones, but uh, look at free testosterone. I'll look at free testosterone as rel- uh, relative to sex hormone-binding globulin, mm-hmm. for instance. Uh, not convinced that higher sex hormone-binding globulin is always a bad thing. That's a whole separate... Because my testosterone, in experimenting with high fat, uh, total testosterone has gone from, like, 650 to 950 in the span of like two months. It's a non-trivial increase. Now, sex hormone, you know, sex hormone binding globulin has also increased over that period of time. But I've gained so much mat, like lean muscle tissue, that um, I have other ideas. And I was talking to uh, Stephen, I think Stephen Finney, about this uh, scientist, very well known for looking at the ketogenic diet, and. Mm -hmm. What he was saying is independent of insulin levels. Insulin being very anabolic. Sorry, we're getting into the weeds here, but mm-hmm. that, is uh, it's possible that my lean mass gains can be accounted for by decreased degradation of branched chain amino acids?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I was like, that's really interesting because then that maybe that explains why fasting plus chemotherapy is very very effective. For instance, people can recover faster from chemotherapy. So you have the ketones, you have the sex hormones. Uh, hemoglobin A1C, sort of like your your running three-month average of, of glucose levels, just as, um, as an insurance policy to ensure that I'm not skewing towards pre-diabetic in any way. Uh, and then a laundry list of like five or six different pages. Yeah. So you,
0: you, your, your biomarkers tend to be a lot of performance-related yeah. biomarkers. I yeah. Mean.
1: And I've done the genetic stuff, so I know, let's just say that uh, I'm a poor methylator. You know, right. My, uh, the the motherfucker gene, as they say. Yes, hey,
0: MTHFR.
1: Yeah, uh, is is not. Yeah, I'm not in an ideal spot. So, in taking say L-methylfolate. Yes. Could be uh, a good option for me, and I've experimented with that in the past, looking at how that could lower, say, homocysteine or other things like that.
0: Have you noticed any any differences after supplementing with five methylfolate, L5 methylfolate, methylcobalamin?
1: Yeah, I. i haven 't noticed many changes in blood markers, and i haven't noticed uh, subjective uh, changes in say performance or clarity or anything like that yeah uh, doesn't mean it isn't doing things
0: yeah I have an but. anecdotal story actually my so i'm very into looking at different gene polymorphisms yeah. twenty three me is a great service that can do that so you know my friends family et etc i 'm telling everyone to do it, and so my mother in law got genotyped and we found out that she is homozygous for mthFR meaning that she her mthFR enzyme only produces about ten or is working at about ten to twenty percent efficiency, mm. um, and she has always had really high blood pressure like mm. to the point where you know, doctors were like wanting to get her on medicine for, it, and yeah. she's always refused nothing she did she's done various diets, lots of you know exercise, lots of things she's tried. nothing has gotten her into a normal range mm-hmm. until we identified she had mthFR got her supplementing with five methylfolate and methylcobalamin. Um, but you know she's she's been taking pretty high doses of it, but now her blood pressure for the first time isn't like a normal range, uh, so I was kind of curious if you had cool. ever.
1: Um, I haven't, I've, I've had, uh, I very consistently what you would, what you would consider excellent blood pressure. So I mm-hmm. haven't looked closely yeah. at that. Uh, the, the question that comes to mind all, for me always, because I've noticed, uh, so I'm a big fan of Richard Feynman and, uh, so Richard Feynman, and I'm not saying this is the case with your, you said mother-in-law yes. or, but, uh, the, the, the importance of, not tricking yourself because you're the easiest person to fool basically is what he would say. And I know that it's what, what I have initially thought were sort of causal relationships yes. with high correlative value. Sometimes, like for instance, uh, I've talked to people who've gone on fill in the blank diet and they're mm-hmm. like, oh my God, like this thing changed. and. Uh, I'm so glad I found this diet. And I'm like, so you haven't changed anything else. And they're like, oh, no, no, no. Like, I started running in the morning. Right. <laughs> I started doing this. I started doing that. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Because, like, one, it's so hard. That's where the observational data gets yes. so challenging when you look at, say, anything, whether it's the China study or whatever. I mean, we don't need to get into that that one, but that's a sensitive one. But the uh, any sort of observational self-reporting and so on, like, it's so... It's the data is almost always so flawed because it's humans n- almost never change just one thing.
0: Yeah, like, I think that's why it's so important when you're looking when you're doing these you know when you're looking at epi studies that are associative that are not you know a clinical randomized controlled yeah. trial sort of um, you know thing that coupling that data with you know mechanistic data done in animal models yeah. or lower organisms. I think yeah. coupling the two yeah, yeah. is very important because then you go oh okay we've noticed this observational data and here we've done x y or z to manipulate it in a worm or in a plausible right. so you have a, a mouse. mechanism right. right so you have like a mechanism that and that's where i think looking comprehensively at the whole at like the scientific yeah is yeah. very important totally um, but it's interesting you mentioned you know the the ketone thing i just want to briefly give you my my uh, yeah. story so i've never been very respons- like i've never noticed really any extreme like mental benefits or mental mm-hmm. acuity changing yeah. when i You know, consume large amounts of MCT. You know, uh, on empty stomach, on whatever. And um, I found out that I have one APOE4 allele, Hmm. and of course, at that point, um, I became terrified of Alzheimer's, and because it increases the risk for Alzheimer's by twofold. And I'm writing an academic paper on this right now, and getting into all the mechanisms and you know, diet, lifestyle, and things like that. But. What I found very interesting is that the studies that have been done where they give, for example, people that have dementia or are in the early stages of Alzheimer's, they give them um, beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is mm-hmm. a yeah. ketone body. Um, and there's yeah, improvements. I have
1: some synthetic jet fuel in the do freezer you? if you want to try it. <laughs> um, we'll probably both vomit on my couch, so let's Yeah, let's do I've it heard later.
0: it's disgusting. <laughs> but um, So people that were APOE3, APOE3, responded very well. So they had improvements in learning and memory.
1: With um, a supplemental MCT,
0: with uh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. beta hydroxybutyrate, yeah, Betty, they gave they gave yeah, them yeah, beta hydroxybutyrate. Yeah. Um, but what was interesting to me and also very discouraging was that people with the ApoE4 allele did not have those benefits. And mm-hmm. um, you know, that's if you look at Alzheimer's people with Alzheimer's, between sixty-five and eighty percent of all people who have Alzheimer's have one allele of
1: ApoE4. Oh. So well, I bet I have that on both sides of my family then, because I have Alzheimer's on both sides.
0: Yeah, I wanted to ask you. So you. Um, mentioned that you have Alzheimer's and Parkinson's on both sides of your family. Yeah. So I'm curious, is, has this changed your, your diet, your lifestyle? Oh, definitely.
1: Um, definitely. How, I mean, how so? Well, the, the, the Parkinson's maybe a bit less so, but on the Alzheimer's side, <clears throat> uh, I have just looked at it like some scientists look at it, which is as brain diabetes. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that's a, it's a helpful, simplified way of, of looking at it. right? And uh, you, I'm sure, know much more about this than I do. But I mean, there's, they're always kind of the, there's the the prevalent theory of why, say, Alzheimer's uh, has the effects that it has, yes. um, uh, on cognitive performance, uh, or in the, in this case, degradation or otherwise. And uh, for a long time, it was like, ah, oh, it's the plaques, it's amyloid plaques, it's this, mm-hmm. it's that, and it turns out to be more complicated than mm-hmm. that, right? Because you have people who are have massive tangles of plaques, but they seem asymptomatic, you know, mm-hmm. they're hundred and X years old and they still play the piano every day or whatever it might be. Um, great movie called the lady in number six, as a side note, 109 year old piano player, um, doesn't get into Alzheimer's, but the, uh, where it has led me is just to be more cognizant of insulin, yeah. uh, things that are related to it or, and or affect insulin. Mm-hmm. Uh, to look at not only ketosis but fasting, to look at cyclical ketogenic diets and so on. Uh, targeted ketogenic diets where you're timing carbohydrate intake near workouts, uh, which a lot of endurance athletes do. So they can consume like three, 400 grams of carbohydrates in a day and still stay in ketosis. Pretty wild stuff. Wow. But what I start wondering, for instance, in the case, because if I take supplemental uh, MCTs or even beta-hydroxybutyrate. Mm-hmm. And there are tasty ways to do it now. I think it's, I think it's Patrick Arnold uh, and Prototype Nutrition. They have, uh, well, people say keto-ca- Ketocana, C-A-N-A, uh, but it tastes like Gatorade, basically, and it's bit hydroxybutyrate. Uh, if I take that when I'm not, say, above 0.6 millimolars uh, ketones, I don't feel much. When, but when my body has shifted into that fat-adapted state, I do feel it. Uh, and offhand I don't know what my status is.
0: Um,
1: yeah. but but with, you know from the genetic standpoint. But what's been very interesting say for me when I'm thinking about it from the standpoint of brain diabetes, yeah,
0: right,
1: is it's not just enough. And this comes back to kind of how people if they focus solely on the millimolar concentration, they can fool themselves because you could be in non-nutritional ketosis, but consuming a lot of supplemental beta hydroxybutyrate and be like, oh, I'm killing it. I'm at, you mm-hmm. know, two millimolars concentration. Whereas I'm also taking my glucometer readings precisely because I don't want to be say running at 120 glucose and dismiss that. If I wake up and I'm fasting 120 glucose each morning, like something funny's going on that I need to pay attention to. Whereas if I drop into nutritional ketosis and let's just say I'm at like 74, 80, even lower, and I have high millimolar, my response to at that point, supplemental beta hydroxybutyrate is totally different. Uh- Anyway, I'm still that's kind of a novice in this space, but it's, it's yeah. interesting stuff.
0: So the cyclical ketogenic diet is something that you do now in and that's, you think, as a consequence of thinking of Alzheimer's like type 2 diabetes. I mean, it's really interesting, uh, the connection between you know insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. I don't know if you um, measure any blood biomarkers or if you're aware of this, but um, there is a biomarker that is present in blood that's called insulin-like receptor 1, mm-hmm. and it's IRS-1. And it's recently, very, very recently, been shown to be a diagnostic for Alzheimer's ten years in advance with 100 percent accuracy. So I don't know. I don't think it's like something that well you, you can modulate. So okay. ten years in advance is a long time to change.
1: <laughs> you're like, Just by the way. <laughs> yeah,
0: by the way, you are you're screwed.
1: Fucked, but
0: <laughs> um, it's good luck with that. It's now inactive. You know yeah. So um, <laughs> what's really it's interesting to me. I one easy to remember at least. Yes. Yes. Is that I typically think of the connection between type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance and Alzheimer's as the connection between inflammation and and, uh, neurodegenerative disease because inflammation, we've now recently found that the lymphatic system connects directly to the brain. Mm. The lymphatic system is what carries blood cells, cytokines, inflammatory molecules and you know inflammation is a major major downstream consequence of being insulin resistant and yeah. inflammation then causes you know reactive oxygen species things that you know damage all sorts of cells but the inflammatory molecules get into the brain and they do start causing all sorts of like immune type of reactions and aggregation of more amyloid beta plaques and tau tangles and all that stuff starts to happen more quickly yeah. um, so i think that the inflammation because if you look at people Type two diabetic. So being type two diabetic, you have a twofold or so roughly increased chance of getting Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. But if you look at people with Alzheimer's, a small percentage of them actually have type two diabetes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that there's it's not just, you know, the the insulin sure, resistance. Sure, sure. I think there's yeah. the consequences, the byproducts, the indirect things that are associated yeah. with um, type two diabetes that yeah. leads to Alzheimer's. And
1: it's 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 rarely, if never, just one thing, right? And I think right. humans Strive for simplicity and in a sort of a sea of noise, especially if you 're not a trained scientist it's just like, God thank, thank goodness somebody gave me a definitive answer like now I know a causes b and it 's like yeah, okay, maybe as a as a a temporary kind of a a temporary holding bay, like we can use that answer, but it's probably not right you know and uh but on the on the inflammation side I've been thinking a lot about this recently uh, because uh Number one, and this is not that uncommon, but I've noticed, for instance, if I'm consuming carbohydrates, cycling carbohydrates, and I'll do, say, a cheat day like yesterday mm-hmm. where I'm eating, like, you know, an entire pound cake by myself, you know, this kind of thing. Uh, and then I get, even several hours later, get acupuncture, and that's a whole separate conversation, but uh, I will bleed more. So, like, I will have, I will, I will bleed much more than if I am, say, in a catotic in state. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, then I have all these questions that come to mind. For instance, like, I mean, I'm consuming uh, like turmeric with like ground pepper, or uh, right. like I because I always read it. I never say it. Piperine. Yeah, piperine. There we go. So to increase the uh, uh, bioavailability and absorption. Right. right. So that's pretty old school. Right. You've got like turmeric, uh, curcumin pills, or whatever. I mean, there mm-hmm. are a million ways to go about it. Uh, but I've 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 tried to whenever possible. So you have like l methylfolio Let's say very interesting to me, but unless I'm mistaken, like pretty new kid on the block. It's, it's a relatively, uh, relatively new addition to the kind of supplement arsenal, whereas like turmeric tea, it's like, okay, Ayurvedic medicine, they've been doing that for thousands of years. Like, right. I'm like, I feel, I feel pretty comfortable like bringing in turmeric tea with like some ginger and uh, black pepper to counteract unnecessary inflammation, yes. right? Yes. At the same time, I'm like, but inflammation, All oh, this is where maybe you can help me gain some clarity. I'm like, but inflammation also serves some really important purposes, yes. right? So if, for instance, you have people go do a weight training workout, and uh, there's there's a fair amount of um, uh, empirical data, I don't know if there's research data to support this, uh, where athletes will be like, oh my God, I don't want to be so sore after my workout. I'll take uh, NSAIDs, right, and I'll take like Advil, ibuprofen, whatever, to facilitate recovery. Mm-hmm. And in fact, then they have less hypertrophy, mm-hmm. and they have less muscle growth right. as a result. So it's like, what is the inflammation that we want to... Not interfere with versus the inflammation that we should try to prevent. Yes,
0: I think that it's something I've been thinking about in a similar way um, with inflammation and also antioxidants, um, because I think that the the type that you want to interfere with is the chronic inflammation, the kind that's coming from your gut that's leaking endotoxin, which is um, released from like dead bacteria when they get you know, um, and it causes all sorts of damage because Mm -hmm. it binds to cholesterol and. Anyways, I can get into this whole conversation, but it's, it's the bad stuff, and yeah. um, you know the inflammation that's causing that chronic re- reactive oxygen species, which damages DNA, proteins, lipids in your cells, which gets into the brain and, and stops serotonin from being released, so it causes depression, things like that. So...
1: Sounds like a bad cycle.
0: <laughs> yes. A very vicious cycle, too, because then you start to activate more inflammatory right. molecules. I think the good type of inflammation, the good type of damage, the good type of stress, is when you exercise. Yeah. It is when you you're doing that type of um, exercise or heat stress or cold stress yeah. or that type of transient you know stress on the body that induces all these you know the expression of genes that deal with stress. So it, you know you're 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 increasing the expression of all these good genes that deal with inflammation, and express, um, and and that and having that inflammation, having that stress. Is critical to do that. I mean, that's how turmeric works, and curcumin. Mm-hmm. The yeah. one of the ways it works is it's actually slightly toxic to us. Mm-hmm. And because it's slightly toxic to us, our body goes, "Oh, wait a minute! I need to increase the expression of all these genes so that they um, make more of the gene to yeah. do all this good stuff to fight inflammation, to fight you know um, reactive oxygen species, all that bad stuff." So um, I think it's sort of like it's a, like a what Dread
1: Pirate Roberts did in the Princess Bride with iodine powder. Yes, a little bit every day.
0: Yes. <laughs> But I mean, it's like the chronic versus acute good type of stress, right? right? right. So I think that's something, you know, that's what I think about. And, and I also have been thinking about it in regards to like supplemental antioxidants mm-hmm. because, um, you know, I used, to, I used to take a lot of uh, vitamin C, mm-hmm. supplemental mm-hmm. vitamin C. And then, and, and you know, there were studies that were showing, you know, taking two grams of supplemental vitamin C a day with lower C-reactive protein and, you know, there's all these reasons why I, I was taking it. But then studies started to come out where, you know, if you take the supplemental vitamin C, like after a workout, you know, the half-life is like an hour and a half in plasma or something. Yeah. But then all the, you know, when you work out, you create oxidative stress and that you want that. That's what induces mitochondrial biogenesis. Like that stress is what signals to mitochondria to make more mitochondria. But if you dampen that by like sequestering that stress with yeah. an antioxidant, you're not going to get those benefits. Mm. So now, and there's studies now showing this both in humans and also uh, in mouse animals. So now I'm kind of a little more cautious about yeah. supplemental antioxidants specifically um, because because they can sequester um, some of that good stress that you want from things like you know exercise or intermittent fasting, for yeah. example, things like that. So oh, uh, I think it's a,
1: interesting. So you think antioxidants. Could negate some of the benefits of say intermittent fasting.
0: Yes, they can, and it's been shown that that oh, can. And you that's know, good to know, it's supplemental antioxidants uh, because when you're intermittent fasting, there are a lot of things are going on, but it's it is a type of stress, mm-hmm. and when you're 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 stressing your cells, you know, things are you're creating um, reactive oxygen species. That's, yeah. that's what happens, and part of that there's a hormetic effect. So when you create these reactive oxygen species, and this is the good type of stress, like creating reactive oxygen species because you're chronically inflamed because you're eating processed carbohydrates and you're poking holes in your gut and leading to inflammation and blah, 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 that's not the good type. You don't want that constant reactive oxygen species being made every day. But when you're intermittent fasting or when you're exercising, that burst of it, which is much more powerful, so it's not like a little bit each day, it's like, boom, here I am. It's enough to signal to your genes, to other cells. You know, make more of this gene that deals with inflammation. Make more of this gene that deals with stress. Make more mitochondria. It's just yeah. enough to do that. You want. That's, the, yeah. that's some, of the, you know, some of the benefits of intermittent fasting and exercise, or rely on that.
1: You know, I was um, <clears throat> just as, a, as another random side note, and this could be the, the alcohol that I was fed by Polish people yesterday talking, but <laughs> so you said reactive oxygen species, ROSs, yes. sounds a lot like... Rous's rodents of unusual size, also from Princess Bride. I'm wondering how much biochemistry you could teach using <laughs> metaphors from the Princess Bride, but that's a whole separate conversation, probably not worth having. But the um, the one one thing that I've been pondering, and I'm not an expert in this area, but vitamin C. If you look at protocols being used at say the University of Kansas uh, for uh, antiviral purposes or uh, anti-cancer purposes, mm-hmm. the Vitamin C is thought of when it's delivered intravenously as a pro-oxidant. So then I'm wondering, huh, so could you use vitamin C in sort of a pro-oxidant capacity, or I guess it's being converted into like hydrogen peroxide, um, to not not mitigate, but exaggerate the the benefits you want of say intermittent fasting? Like is there...
0: That's interesting.
1: So like is there a place if you were doing, not even necessarily intermittent, let's say you did a seven day water fast could you do like 50 to 75 grams of vitamin C each day would that would that end up making nullifying a lot of the effects or dramatically enhancing the effects so
0: here's my thoughts yeah. purely spectating you know I'm spectating here yeah. um, i think because So, um, you know, intravenous vitamin C, you get much higher, you know, up to millimolar concentrations of vitamin C in your blood. And as you mentioned, um, so vitamin C is constantly going through this cycle of being um, reduced and oxidized, reduced and oxidized. When it's oxidized, it can act as a pro-oxidant. And that's part of the way it kills cancer cells because cancer cells are, they're ready to die, but they've, they've found a way around death by increasing all these genes that stop them from dying. But all they need is a little push, and that little push is, you know, like reactive oxygen species or, you know, a pro-oxidant like hmm. vitamin C, and it just put, pops them, pushes them to death. So intermittent fasting, for example, one of the benefits of intermittent fasting is that your um, autophagy occurs; your body is clearing out all these damaged cells. Yeah. So that would, in theory, if you've got damaged cells, they're ready. So the problem is with damaged cells: if they don't die, they become senescent. Yeah. And when they're senescent, they sit around and they secrete pro-inflammatory mm, cytokines. Yeah, yeah. So then they damage nearby cells because the inflammatory cytokines, so there's like this vicious yeah. cycle and it's why
1: you need to get, you need the, to get them out. <laughs> the cellular Zamboni to like yeah, clear, clear to that stuff. Out.
0: That's a the funny um, analogy. I used to be an ice ring skater. That's my I used oh. to be an ice skater. Oh, really? Yeah. Like for many, many years I was a um, competitive ice skater. Both um, so freestyle and drill steam. Anyways, so you want to clear them out, um, and I, I would think that if you have this, you know, senescent cell, um, that would help, you know, get rid of it. Yeah. So, um, mm-hmm. very, very interesting uh, yeah. I've been, observation. I've right. been
1: thinking about it also because um, cancer, generally cancer. I mean, we by the time you're forty, let's say, I mean, we all have sort of precancerous little cells. Cells, but the question is, you know, do they grow? Do they then? Sort of metastasize or become a problem, or do they just remain these little mutations that don't cause any particular harm? Uh, among other things, obviously. And for me, <clears throat> uh, the, I become also interested. I'd love to get your opinion on metformin yeah. uh, because there are people who would say, well, you know, if you want to try to dodge that cancer bullet, uh, we know that cancer cells are they, they love um, kind of sustaining themselves anaerobically. Uh, or f- let me rephrase that: with glucose, yes. right, they love glucose. So yes. if we can, if we can really, if we can dramatically lower, say, your uh, whether it's storage of glycogen, um, plasma uh, glucose, whatever it might be, then in theory, we should be able to lower the risk of cancer right. uh, and and limit cancer growth, cancer cell growth. Uh, what? What are your thoughts on metformin?
0: Yeah, I. And why
1: are you taking it or not taking it?
0: I'm not taking it. So, yeah. and the reason I'm not taking it, I, I think you know, that it has been shown, like you said, you know, it it can possibly prophylactically prevent cancer. Yeah. So far, and and I think the the studies that have shown that um, have been pretty short term. Um, my concern with metformin is the um, feedback mechanisms that happen when you're taking this drug. Um, you know, how is that going to affect you know other you know, cells and how they respond to glucose and things like that over the long term, like you know, fifteen years down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that limiting your sugar intake yeah. is probably if you're if you if you haven't damaged yourself so much by eating a bunch of crap, a bunch yeah. of processed sugars and you know carbohydrates and things like that, yeah. um, then then you know, I, I think limiting your, your sugar intake is probably good good enough. Yeah you know and there's to a certain component there's a, there's a certain component of cancer that's you know there's there is a genetic component that that what i mean by that is not that you're born with it but that um, you know so downstream of you know a, a cell that's glycolytic that's only using glucose to make atp through this glycolysis pathway mm-hmm. um, is inflammation again. I come back to it because it's just downstream of everything and inflammation damages DNA and eventually you get it in the right gene that's saying, oh, this gene usually protects it. whenever there's any damage. It kills a cell. It's called a tumor suppressor gene. You get it in that tumor suppressor gene, you're screwed. Now you're, anytime you get damage, that pathway isn't like activated to go, whoa, wait a minute. This is not good. I'm going to die. And it just keeps living. Yeah. Um, if you look at like, for example, our lymphocytes. Our lymphocytes are glycolytic and they're not cancer. Yeah. yeah. So it's not as simple as, you know, a glycolytic cell is gonna give you cancer.
1: No, no. But
0: definitely, you know, starving I think before you get to the point where you're starving a cancer cell, you can kill the damaged cell before Mm -hmm. it becomes to that point where it's become shifted its metabolism. So
1: what do the, the lymphocytes do in like a catabolic state? Do they like derive? I don't know. Do, do they derive glucose from lactate or something?
0: Yes, they do get it from lactate. Lactate is is something that they do use. Hmm. Yeah, um, and cool. that's it's interesting because lactate also is much like ketone bodies, energetic thermodynamically favorable. Mm-hmm. So it takes less um, energy to make energy. Yeah, yeah. So you're consuming less oxygen because you. Don't need as many ATP molecules to make ATP. So, um, but back on the ketone. Since we're back on the ketone, I do <laughs> want to get to the Lyme disease because oh, yeah. it's a topic that I avoid. I've never actually. I've it's, never talked it's about one it. One I avoid too. Yeah. So I always have this like knee-jerk reaction because I'm like the signal-to-noise ratio is so small, and yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like there's just a lot of confusion. So much nonsense. But. I'd be really interested because you're not—you're a very analytical person. So, try to be what your, you know, experience with well, obviously it's a real disease. People yeah. suffer from it. You can observe spirochetes under a microscope. Yeah. Um, so it's definitely real. Mm-hmm. Um, There's just a lot of craziness that seems to be associated with it. Um, but maybe you can talk a little bit about because you mentioned going on the ketogenic diet to treat your Lyme disease. Um, can you talk a little bit about like what you found mm-hmm. um, in terms of like. Your experience with Lyme disease, yeah. and how you got to treating it with ketogenesis, and
1: yeah, yeah, I can talk about it. Um, and the, the all right, so where to begin with this? Uh, first of all, I'd just like to agree with you and sort of emphasize for everybody that the amount of nonsense and charlatanism uh, out there surrounding Lyme is just beyond belief. I mean, it's just there there are so many fraudulent. Companies and practitioners who are just printing money by either misdiagnosing people with Lyme, yeah. or treating Lyme in the quacket most the, the quackiest of quackery. Why? I mean, Lyme? I mean, why? Like, why? Did they- here's, here's so here's my thinking is that uh, it's, so I contracted Lyme on Eastern Long Island, which if you look at the the CDC map, right, the Center for Disease Control heat map for Lyme disease, like that is ground zero, like mm-hmm. that's where the bomb went off. Uh, and Lyme is named after Lyme, Connecticut. So it's, it's really, uh, has, has historically focused on that sort of northeastern area, Pennsylvania, also upstate New York, Hudson Valley. And uh, pe- I think Lyme has become this popular topic of conversation for a few reasons. Number one, <clears throat> it's poorly understood on a lot of levels. So there's, there are ample opportunities for non-scientists and quacks to sort of invent stories around it. That
0: makes sense.
1: Uh, number one. So there's an opera. There, there's a number two. It's it's scary. It involves a bug biting you, and you catch this disease. So the media loves it. The media loves it. The media writes about it. Then the media sometimes correctly, often incorrectly, lists the symptoms of Lyme disease: joint pain. Depression, fatigue. It's like, well, that's one out of every two people in the United States right. at some point every year. So then people go, oh my god, I've had my my elbow. Like I got an email from a friend of mine. He said, uh, you know, my my shoulders have been bothering me for a couple of weeks, and <laughs> two of my friends said it might be Lyme, and I'm oh, like, no. <laughs> oh my god, it's not. Like I would bet a thousand dollars it's not Lyme. Yeah. Like in given where you live, given the likelihood of having contracted it. G- It's just so unlikely for most people. Now, all of that having been said, Lyme is a real thing. Like you said, you can invert, you can observe these spirochetes under a microscope. I think another reason it's popular to talk about is people love saying the word spirochete. I'm not kidding; (laughs) they love saying spirochetes because they imagine this like screwdriver, like this 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 horribly, uh, you know, evil like maleficent, yeah. like spiral bug that like digs into your body and like the, the antibiotics come in and they're like, oh no, we're going to hide from the antibiotics. And it's like, no, it's not that sentient. Like it's not.
0: My, <laughs> we're, my we're, husband's grandmother says spirochetes probably like at least every conversation. People love her. saying <laughs> spirochetes.
1: Yeah. So you get it. Yes. So for all these reasons, it's popular to talk about. Um, I think primarily because the symptoms overlap with a million other mm-hmm. conditions. <sighs> what I came to realize for myself is like, yes, it's a real thing. It's almost certain after Western blot tests, ELISA tests, and looking at all of the diagnostics, which are really primitive, it's very likely that I already had Lyme disease at some point Mm -hmm. um, because I've been bitten by ticks hundreds of times. I mean, almost everyone in my immediate family has had Lyme disease, and on Long Island, it's just kind of like, suck it up, like take some antibiotics, you're fine, like doxycycline, move on with life. It's not this big. It's not viewed as like a huge crisis by everyone who gets it on Eastern Long Island because it's so common. Uh, so I shrugged it off. I did not get when I was, I took three or four deer ticks that were embedded off of me in the span of two or three weeks and, you know, historically hadn't been a big deal. So I was like, well, that sucks. Well, you know, pick it off, make sure the head's not in there, move on. And I did not develop the, what's thought of as the kind of trademark, the, the trademark bullseye rash. And so I ignored progressively worsening symptoms for eight weeks where like my joints started getting very sore, swollen, had trouble like getting out of bed in the morning, um, started getting slow cognitively and had trouble recalling friends' names and just really common words and eventually got to a point where my system was like I've seen you sick, I've seen you tired, I've seen you like burning the candle at both ends. This is none of those things. Yeah, like I've, you need to go see a doctor.
0: Like it sounds like dementia thing, like not no, remembering things are friends. Really, names, that's yeah, freaking. things
1: are really funny and if you look at the advanced uh, symptoms of severe Lyme. I mean, they, they, it takes on dementia-like uh, qualities and like, even cerebral palsy in some cases, really scary stuff. So long story short, then I get diagnosed with Lyme. And when I walk into the clinic in, uh, you know, on Long Island, to give you an idea of how common it is, so this walk-in kind of emergency clinic open on the weekend, they had a poster up which was like, hey, uh, allow us to send your blood sample to such and such lab upstate New York to do research on Lyme. And there's a picture of a tick and we'll give you a free $50 Amazon gift card. Oh and it's like, God. it's that common. Uh, but then the question was, okay, I have Lyme, I'm taking doxycycline. I do that for eight weeks or 12 weeks, whatever it was. I still feel really shitty. Now what? Right? And that's it's when... A long
0: antibiotic course.
1: Yeah. It, well, some people do. Like... They take antibiotics for years, which yeah. I think is not the right thing to do. but. Uh, the, what, this is where I am and I'll try to sum it up because this can be a very long conversation. I think that there are very, very, very credible scientists and, um, infectious disease specialists who do not believe that chronic Lyme exists and their position would be, there's no evidence that, you know, the, whatever it is, the Borelis blah, 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 you know, spirochete cannot be eradicated with. Broad-spectrum antibiotics, like a doxycycline or something else. There's no evidence to suggest that they like burrow away and hide Mm -hmm. and come back, you know, hide in biofilm or whatever. Yeah, right. Right. Uh, Then you have people, uh, and there aren't that many, but a handful of people who are like, well, it is possible that this Lyme could behave something like herpes simplex, where you have it's like a recurring. infection essentially and it maybe it takes root in like the nervous system somehow and only comes back out in times of stress right there mm-hmm. are people credible uh, doctors who have been like it's not completely beyond the realm of possibility mm-hmm. that it has some recurring nature okay um, still kind of descriptive not prescriptive like what do we do right and uh, then the the theory that I kind of came up with, uh, and I'm sure other people have come up with it, but I, I hadn't read it. I was like, well, let's look at the symptoms of Lyme. You have know, like depression, fatigue. What are other potential causes after a long course of antibiotics? Well, maybe you just completely scorched earth your microbiome, among right. other things. So one of my kind of theories is that the, what people perceive as chronic Lyme is in fact a collection of similar symptoms caused by the long course of antibiotics, so that you should focus on prebiotics, probiotics. I have had a tremendous amount of difficulty, at least as measured in common, say, uh, stool testing mm-hmm. and so on, in repopulating my gut diversity. It's been extremely hard. And I have pre- I've consumed just about you know, every type of pre-probiotic imaginable, and I've also tweaked my diet to try to be more favorable for certain types of gut repopulation. It's been really tough. I mean, I, I, I did a, like a three month intense protocol of all sorts of stuff. So I'd love your thoughts. Yes. Did a follow up stool sample analysis, and it was still just like, no, you're fucked. I was like, wow. So depressing.
0: You're you're talking about me- measuring your um, your fecal bacteria yeah. population using like uBiome.
1: Right. Yeah, Ubiome or you know, there are other like Rocky Mountain, blah blah blah, doctors data, okay, whatever. Okay, so there's other ones. Yeah, yeah. So well, yeah. I mean, Ubiome has a, yeah, slightly different approach, but okay, along those lines. Yeah.
0: Um, so what's I agree with you for one. It's very first of all. Um, I, I heard a podcast you did with Jessica Richmond mm-hmm. from, from Ubiome, and yep. I think you had talked about this, and that's yep. how I became first aware that you talk your the link between when you mentioned. Having this hypothesis that you thought um, possibly some of these symptoms of Lyme disease were a consequence of just complete gut dysbiosis, where you're, you know, you're taking several rounds of antibiotics and you are obliterating, you know, your gut bacteria. A lot of the good ones are going away, and, you know, and if you don't take a very strong probiotic immediately after antibiotics. It repopulates with all the bad stuff, and it's yes. really hard to yeah. get because they take up, they occupy space, and yeah. they're sitting in what's called the mucin in the gut, mm-hmm. and um, they have to stick in the mucin to stay. Otherwise, anything anything you take will just flow through. It's kind of yeah. like the flow through. Yeah. And so um, it's really hard to to repopulate. I've been doing a lot of self experimentation with. Ubi- I've been using uBiome to track yeah. my my gut um, bacteria, you know, genotypes. But um, have you tried VSL number three?
1: Have it in my fridge right now. Do you? Yeah. Okay, yeah.
0: so the sachets are the what I recommend because yeah,
1: I have the capsules. The
0: sachets yeah. have 450 billion,
1: yeah,
0: um, which is more than what the capsules have. 450 yeah. billion is like 10 times more than what most probiotics have. Yep. Yeah. Um, the thing about VSL number three, very interesting. So it's the probiotic that I take. Um, I'm taking it because I've had a lot. Of, I've had some gut issues um, yeah. that started in graduate school um, because I got MRSA. Mm. And
1: yeah, it's not fun.
0: Antibiotics were the were the prescription, and I had several courses of yes. strong ones. Yeah. And finally, um, it kept com- kept coming back, and I was like fed up. I'm
1: how like, do you get MRSA?
0: I don't really know What's how that? I got it. worked in a hospital. staff. Yes.
1: Staff oh, mm-hmm.
0: aureus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I worked in a children's hospital. Oh, that's a good place to get um, it. <laughs> they're everywhere in hospitals. So yeah. I, who knows where I yeah. got it? Right. I mean, but the point is, I got it, and it sucked. Um, and so. I finally, after like I don't know three or four rounds of antibiotics, it would, I would take it and then go away, and then like a month later, it would come back, and then again and again. And I was like, I can't do this. Like, yeah. so I read in the literature that um, with the help of my husband Dan, that you know, garlic and grapes, grapefruit seed extract, just a concoction of things. Um, I applied both topically, I made a cream, then I orally took, hmm. and within 24 hours I got this thing to come to a head, puss out, and never came back. Interesting. So, uh, But as a consequence of all the antibiotic use, I had serious gut issues, led to IBD, and it, I've been, you know, finally been able to recover, and I'm I IBD, still- IBD,
1: irritable bowel disorder? Yeah, inflammatory bowel. Inflammatory yeah. bowel disorder.
0: So, um, but it's been really, really a, a long journey in yeah. tweaking my diet, and doctors, of course, I went to see doctors, and they were just like- here, take an SSRI. It helps with the pain. And I'm like, I'm not going to take an SSRI. Yeah, no thanks. Yeah, and I like walked out of that doctor. I'm like, <laughs> I'm not. You're insane. You know, this was like a like a pelvic pain specialist doctor. Yeah. So I've just had terrible experiences with yeah. doctors. And finally, I'm like, why aren't you asking me about my diet, fiber, you know, things like that? Yeah. Um, and so I tweaked my diet and did lots of things. But VSL yeah. number three. Um,
1: so you've seen? Have you with the uBiome testing? Have you seen and I haven't done a follow up. Uh, Test in a few months, but I have been taking VSL number three, so now I'm optimistic. Yes, hopefully.
0: So, so I did a uh, thirty day VSL number three um, course with the sachets, which are four hundred fifty billion, and did a a, a stool test, and I'm still waiting for those results. Um, I've I've had my husband and I both. um, Dan, he's done a recent course of antibiotics, and so I had him. Do his baseline and then, after, right after, literally like the day he stopped taking antibiotics, did a sample yeah. from Ubiome. I got that data back, so I've been looking at that. So I'm gonna talk about all the, it's really complicated yeah, and yeah. things in the literature <laughs> are confusing and some people think some things and they're actually not true. So I've been looking at other yeah. people's Ubiome. Anyways, I'm gonna be uh, doing a series of talks on this, so cool. I'm pretty excited. But, yeah,
1: I'll, um, I'll check them out. The, may I add the, 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 the uh, just a little bit of color on the ketosis. Yes. In, and the, the color there is I began looking at fasting as a tool for very many, many different reasons. Um, and whether that be related to, say, longevity or um, kind of the, the reason I was excited about it as I was looking at it as basically a reboot for the immune system, mm-hmm. <clears throat> even shorter fasts, like three days. So I I began playing around with fasting, and then, of course, you fast long enough and you go into pretty deep ketosis. Right. And so it was almost an accidental discovery for me whereby I had not been in nutritional ketosis for 10 years, 15 years. I did a lot of experimentation with the cyclical ketogenic diet when I was in college and competing as an athlete. And then I just stopped because it was kind of a pain in the ass, and it's really boring. Uh, But then I did this fasting, To reboot, help reboot my immune system uh, for just uh, keep it simple. So, rebooting my immune system kicked over into deep ketosis and suddenly felt amazing. And my cognitive function just went through the roof compared to how I had felt up to that point after Lyme disease. And I was like, well, this is very interesting, isn't Mm -hmm. it? And I said, well, I don't have to fast to be in nutritional ketosis. So, let me now play around with ketosis and see. What I can discover just by tracking and logging a lot of data, and uh, so so I have my kind of the pet hypothesis about the the gut biome,
0: yes, yeah,
1: and the antibiotics leading to symptoms that appear to be Lyme when in fact they're caused by something else. Uh, Another hypothesis, and the reason I I'd like to dig into this, but I don't, I haven't come up with a great plausible explanation for this, is that Lyme or the antibiotics or both. Somehow interfere with carbohydrate metabolism. Uh, and hmm. that's just a starting point. But I've had, because I've been public about the Lyme stuff, because I was incapacitated, I had to tell people, I was like, sorry, I'm not going to reply to your email. <laughs> like, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm, at, I'm archiving 2,000 emails, sorry. Uh, why? Lyme. And then uh, people started coming out of the woodwork to be like, hey, my wife has Lyme. She's been debilitated. What should we do? What have you learned? And the only advice that I gave a few people is like, look, there's a lot of BS out there, so number one is like put your thinking cap on and be a good scientist to the extent possible. Uh, Number two is try a carb-restricted diet, Try and ideally go into ketosis. Uh, All of the people who have gone into ketosis have had the same experience I have. Uh, Have Now it's a handful of people, like so the N, the sample size is really small, but these are people who are like, cannot function, had to quit my job type serious cases. Into ketosis, wow, I feel like my old self.
0: Have you measured any changes in gut bacteria uh, after going into ketosis or after doing the ketogenic diet?
1: I haven't. Um, that is also, yeah, a very interesting topic of discussion, right? So, what effect does ketosis have <laughs> on the, the gut biome or the repopulation, the rate or the diversity of repopulation? Uh, short answer is I don't know. And part of it is, and this is where. Maybe I'm just not being a thorough scientist, but I felt it worked so well for me. I'm kind of like doing. I'm like, I'm so excited to get back to like building things and creating things and being my old self that I haven't taken the time to yeah. dissect it to the extent I probably should. But uh, I'm not sure
0: your carbohydrate. I I have this interesting uh, sort of hypothesis that sort of is related. Um, you know, people that have a, a severe imbalance of gut bacteria, let's say they have. A lot less of the commensal bacteria, which is making good, you know, short-chain fatty acids and metabolites like lactate that are feeding other good bacteria. They're feeding your gut cells, so you have less of those, and you have more of the bacteria that are, say, you know, methane or hydrogen sulfate producing. So you get yep. bloated. More of the, um, you know, more pathogenic type of bacteria. So you have this overgrowth of bad bacteria. But the thing is, is that let's say you know you eat something that's um, typically supposed to you know be good, like you eat something like uh, that has a lot of fiber mm-hmm. um, and or like vegetables and so you're you're getting this, this fiber that's supposed to be you know not digested but the bacteria can right. digest it and make it into this good stuff. Well, mm-hmm. bad bacteria can digest that as well. So you're feeding mm-hmm. this bacteria substrates to make you know to keep going and to make more of the bad bacteria. Uh, right. Now the interesting thing that I don't know is, you know, what there are certain species of bacteria species, there's phyla, class species, it's like so incredibly complicated, but certain species only metabolize fat. And I don't know which ones Hmm. those are and if they're um, good or bad Or sounds like you've had a positive experience, but that would be really interesting to to measure in general. Um, But I'm glad you're feeling better and, you know, the the ketogenic diet is something that I'm interested in um, diving into and understanding more about. I'd like to talk to Peter. Um, he's guy. Told, I listened to the yeah. pod, I guess I don't know. He's done more than one podcast, but I listened to one he's been on. Yeah, he did. He
1: did was, one with me, which was uh, our conversation, and then he did a follow up with me, which was answering the ten most popular questions. Okay, submitted. so I listened to
0: the conversation, and yeah. I I heard him, and I was like, I want to talk to this guy. He's a, he's a scientist. He thinks yeah. like a scientist. I respect what he's saying, yeah. and I think that him and I have a lot of yeah. interesting overlap. That so I he's I, also liked.
1: compulsively performance driven. So. Uh, and he's—I mean—he's—he walks the talk, right? I mean, what I like about Peter is that he's not an academic who like takes his breaks at the hospital, like going outside and smoking cigarettes, and has like a punch. Like no, he's a—he's a competitive athlete. I, I, and I say that because I literally saw a bunch of people standing outside of a hospital yesterday in their scrubs, like smoking cigarettes on break, and I was like, I can't like,
0: believe people smoke. Still. Oh my it's God.
1: crazy. So, uh, but. Peter, on the other hand, is um, you know still a very competitive, driven athlete, so he uh, just has a unique perspective on all this stuff.
0: So, on the athletic side, um, mm-hmm. I have a question for you. Um, okay. In the in the four hour body, you talk about the minimal effective dose, yeah, and you you mention high intensity interval training mm-hmm. and how um, you know you can get long lasting effects with you know just more less effort basically and. Mm-hmm. At first, I was like, "Hmm," and then you went on to talk about biomarkers, like you, you know, that studies that have shown high-intensity interval training, in, you know, increases mitochondrial biogenesis mm-hmm. as much, if not more, than let's say, like an hour and a half or something of cardio. Yeah. Um, and then you went on to the brain, which I—that's what—that was my real concern. I was like, "Well, fine. If you're gonna, you know, get more the same amount of muscle mass or more from doing this, that's great. But what about the brain benefits? Because yeah. I'm." interested in saving off Alzheimer's. Like right. I mentioned, I've mm-hmm. got an increased risk. So, you know, exercise has been shown to um, people with ApoE4 allele are much, much less likely to get Alzheimer's if they exercise the more mm-hmm. intensely, the better. So, you know, part of that is because your BDNF, you're yeah. increasing neurotrophic factors that are growing new neurons because you need to repair a lot of that damage that's going on in the brain. So I'm interested in um, whether or not you are still engaging in, you know, high intensity interval training and what, you know, if anything, you measure uh, to know that the the minimal effective dose is working?
1: Yeah, that's a big question. So uh, I am uh, coming off of and rehabbing some very serious leg, knee, and ankle injuries that I inflicted on myself doing the crazy parkour episode for my TV show. So I'm not doing a lot of interval training uh, that would be recognizable as, say, let's just call it like Tabata training or some type of sprint training or something like that because it's too high impact. Uh, I So I have concluded, yes, I'm still practicing the the, the the minimal or minimum effective dose in a lot of facets of exercise. I think that most people do as much as possible, not as little as is needed. And you can Absolutely. you can land somewhere in the middle. But if the, the higher the level of athletics, generally speaking, the more coaches work on holding their athletes back and not pushing their athletes. I think this is a very poorly understood idea, but at the highest level, pushing the athletes is not the problem. With some team sports, it's different, like even in the NFL. But if we're talking about, let's say, track and field, the coaches spend more time holding their athletes back. And uh, so in my case, if you do, for instance, for most people who go to the gym one hour a day, five days a week, if they're trying to change body composition, would get better results by doing two or three sets of swings per week. Kettlebell swings, um, and I've just I've seen this hundreds and thousands of times in uh, in readers already. <clears throat> For me, with uh, with mental performance, and you know, there's the book Spark that talks about a lot of this stuff, and like like you said, the brain drive neurotrophic factors and so on. Uh, from a subjective standpoint, I've seen as good results, if not better results, in terms of cognitive performance from resistance training of almost any type. Uh, when compared to, say, steady state or even higher intensity uh, interval training that could be thought of as cardio, say, like sprinting or cycling or whatnot. And uh, sort of mechanistically, I don't have specific sort of before and after biomarkers that I'm tracking, Uh, but I am looking at, say, you know, pages per day output, quality of writing, which can get very subjective, but I I think that... uh, as these studies hopefully get, get funded, we will see that resistance training. If you think about it, resi- weight training is very effective cardio, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> you need if to you su- push it. Yeah. Either way, like if if, if the if you're using and uh, you know Doug McGuff has talked about this quite a bit, but if if the if you're utilizing musculature to move your body through space, particularly with resistance, your heart has to work really hard generally to supply. All the necessary nutrients and so on to get that job done. Um, so, I think that on top of that, if you're looking to prevent age related cognitive and physical, physical decline, mm-hmm. one of the key correlates with all the bad stuff is sarcopenia, right? It's so a loss yes. of muscle yes. mass. To which I would say targeted resistance training, much more effective, bang for the buck. In not only preventing lean muscle tissue loss, but increasing muscle gain, than say most types of interval training, even if you're temporarily spiking certain hormones. Um, so, my, but that's also because I hate doing endurance work. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, uh, I really hate doing metabolic conditioning. I find it miserable. So, I, I usually avoid it. Uh, but I, I do think that if you were to just do you know, two, three sets. I, I I really focus these days personally in my exercise regimen on sort of high intensity, very brief duration, or very 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 long duration. Typically walks like two to four hour walks, and I have a barbell approach. So it's it's kind of like my investing approach too. But my my physical training approach is very barbell oriented. So it's either like these sprint like demands which could be, say, overhead squats, I think are, are really fantastic for a whole host of reasons for preventing a lot of the physical maladies that plague people as they get older. Um, and then long two to four hour walks. Awesome. Like uh, humans have made a lot of evolutionary trade-offs to be able to walk long distances. So I feel like, right. you know, maybe that's, maybe that's something we need to, to do more. If we've made so many compromises to be able to walk long distances, like, hmm, I don't know. I find quality of life subjectively assessed. A lot higher when you're doing regular kind of long, steady-state walking,
0: and it's just also like medit- the meditative aspect of it. I mean, Definitely. that's it's something that you get from walking long, yeah, long distances, yeah, for sure. Um, especially if you're in a calm and peaceful environment. So, yeah,
1: so I mean, a lot of, um, lot of parks out there. Get outside. <laughs> I'm
0: interested. I'm interested to know. Uh, you do talk about meditation a lot and yep. being mindful, and you know the, how that's important for you know a lot of things, mm-hmm. um, and it's been shown to improve. Learning memory, things like that yeah. um, have you ever tried flotation tank i have you have yeah okay
1: i have i 've tried flotation tanks, I like flotation tanks there's a new there is a new location actually in the city that I have not been to on blanking. reboot
0: spa or something I think is yeah, it or it might
1: be yeah reboot spa maybe float lab i 'm not sure exactly what the name is, but I think it's reboot uh, yeah, but the the only location that I had available to me beforehand was a real pain to get to from where. I am kind of in the Noe Valley mm-hmm. area. And uh, as a result, I went a handful of times, but could never make it a regular track or didn't want to make it a regular track. But I could see uh, using flotation tank for all sorts of different experiments, yeah. um, including potentially incorporating microdosing of various types. Uh, but do you use flotation tanks?
0: I'm actually going to try it for the first time next week. Someone, uh. So they actually, this new flotation. Um, Tank Place reached out to me. I think it's a reboot or something. Yeah. Um, reached out to me and gave me some free passes, and I'm like, you know what? I'll do it. Let's, do, you know, give it a go. So I'm going to yeah. go uh, next week. Actually. Cool. Don't uh, shave the day
1: before. Try. it.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs> You're basically in the Dead Sea. I mean, it's all salt, yeah. so you will be really unhappy. No, I'm excited,
0: counting. so I'm, yeah. I'm I'll yeah. talk about.
1: I wouldn't shave for a couple of days beforehand. <laughs> so um,
0: I just a couple of non, you know, not particularly health related questions. I yeah. just want to ask you before we before we close. Sure. Um, one One is so in your in your books and also in your TV show, The Tim Ferriss Experiment, you talk about um, doing some silly things that help people push past anxiety, like laying on the floor of a crowded place or going and ordering a cup of coffee and asking for a discount right. arbitrarily. right so what do you think some of the the positive benefits that can be reaped from that are, and have you are there any specific you know fear? Inducing things that you 've engaged in that have given you benefits in your life
1: uh, so I think the benefit of practicing discomfort is is realizing repeatedly that the worst case just isn 't that bad, yes. so becoming comfortable with increasing levels of discomfort, especially something that 's like ridiculous, and has no real tangible downside other than embarrassment I think right. it 's very. <laughs> to be, and this comes back to kind of my obsession with Stoic philosophy, but if you if you were to look at like, uh, for instance, Cato, who was considered kind of the perfect Stoic for a period of time, uh, he would wear a tunic that was an unusual color to train himself, because he would get ridiculed for it, to train himself to be embarrassed about only those things which are truly worth being embarrassed about. Clothing not being one of them. Right. right? So going into, say, a Starbucks or whatever, and just kind of Calmly sitting down and then like laying down on the floor for 10 seconds. Super awkward. People are going to think it's weird. Some people might like take five steps back and kind of freak out. Uh, And then you just get back up and be like, oh, fine. And it's it's a small way of inoculating yourself against uh, succumbing to peer pressure about stupid things. Or holding off on making important decisions or having uncomfortable conversations because of this irrational fear of this massive downside that you've never actually thought about. So something like laying down, asking for a free coffee or asking for a discount uh, is really just rehearsal for the things that happen outside of your control uh, or the more important conversations so that you have a certain level of calmness and have... Repeatedly had the realization that the worst case scenario you're imagining is almost never that bad, Uh, and uh, so those are just training mechanisms. Yeah.
0: So Um, you're basically dealing, um, you're dealing with high pressure or stress. You know, you're inducing stress to deal with it better for the next time when there actually is uh, a stressful situation. You're
1: more calm and right. It's like if you want to negotiate a raise with your boss, probably not the the the. It's probably not best. To practice your negotiating in that first conversation, like you should go to a state fair and like learn how to haggle and like take a hundred bucks and that's like your tuition, that's your MBA in haggling. Like, don't be a jerk and negotiate with everybody and not buy anything. But it's like, all right, you have a hundred bucks to spend. Your job is to get three hundred dollars worth of stuff for a hundred dollars. Like a state fair, and it's like go practice.
0: It's a great uh, suggestion. (laughs) I've actually overcome. I I had a lot of fear of public speaking, and I would go and um, into the mall and tell jokes to random people and i am not a comedian so i'm a scientist i'm you know i've been in a lab most of my yeah. life reading books and so you know social interaction you know is it's a little anxiety inducing for me yeah um and so i would do this and most of the time people would laugh yeah. at my bad jokes and you know less look at me like i'm insane i'd still get that but um you know i i did get over that anxiety of having people think i'm you know, crazy or just like that awkwardness of like talking to someone. Yeah. And now I'm, you know, communicating science to people. So yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it really, um, it worked for me. Yeah. Um, and so I, I thought that was...
1: And, and the baby steps that that seem so ridiculous, like the tellings of the joke yeah. or asking for a free coffee, it's hard for some people to realize how much those experiences transfer because they're like, well, when am I ever going to have to ask for free coffee? It's like, no, you're missing right. the point. The point is to subject yourself to the same types of fear and discomfort that you will experience in a million other circumstances and to overcome that uh, in in a very sort of rehearsed way yeah and uh, so for instance, I mean for me in the in the dating episode the dating game episode of the TV show, I mean like Neil Strauss, who wrote the game, forced me to do cold approaches at the ferry building here in San Francisco, <laughs> which is like my ultimate nightmare. I mean, it brought back like every stressful, sweaty palm, miserable situation from like eighth and ninth grade. Giving me
0: sweaty palms. Yeah. I mean, it's (laughs) just
1: so bad. And, uh, but I enjoy trying to like every week it's like plan something out that is going to force you to do something potentially funny, right. That is going to be stress inducing and just like figure out what that is and then go do it. It's like, maybe that's you know, getting a milk crate and like a hat and going out and trying to busk without getting arrested, obviously, but like trying to busk and like be a shitty dancer and make five bucks. That's your goal. Like you have an hour to make $5 being a shitty dancer. Like see, see what we're being a terrible mime, right. Or whatever it is. Right. And the more you practice that type of thing, um, you know, I have here, I'll, I'm going to disappear from camera for a second, but you know, I have this and, uh, I'm not sure. I can't, I don't even know how to pronounce this name, which I'm embarrassed by, but you know, this, this quote is, the life shrinks or expands in proportion to one's courage. If you can pronounce that, you got me beat. A-N-A-I-S with an umlaut over the I. Yeah. N-I-N, second. But that. So this this is something that I, I have reminders like this in front of me constantly. So that I realize very rarely are the things we're afraid of worth being afraid of. Right. And to overcome that, you just have to practice.
0: Most of the time, they're not.
1: Yeah. You know. and, and it's it's rather than... It's very hard to think your way out of something you didn't think your way into. So if you're afraid of like asking for a discount on coffee, that's not really a rational fear. Like, it's just not. So the way you overcome that is not by sitting down and like, drawing out a decision tree, although that, that stuff can help, and like fear setting, this exercise I do a lot, can be very helpful. You go out and you just try it, and uh, that's how you overcome these sort of irrational reptilian fears.
0: Absolutely, and, and it helps you to deal with... I mean, it. It it, like you said, it helps you to next time you have that fear, you're more calm, you're thinking more clearly. You're. you're, I'm sure if they were to do like MRIs, like of people before they do this sort of, you know, sort of microdosing themselves to this type of fear, and then you know after when they're actually dealing a in a difficult situation, they may see that their you know amygdala isn't hyper as hyperactive or something like that, where you're really training your brain. Yeah,
1: and the meditation you mentioned that the meditation helps a lot. Meditation helps you to not overreact. Yeah. So I find the meditation too, and I'm a very like aggressive bull in a china shop kind of guy. So the meditation is particularly helpful for me when, let's say, you ask for a discount for a coffee, and the guy's like, "Who the fuck do you think you are?" Like my instinct would be like, "Who the fuck you yeah. are?" You know, and uh, instead to just be like, "Hmm, that's a good question. Give me a second. and then like to calmly respond, get a laugh, and then the guy gives you the discount. Like having that composure to have a delay between the immediate like.
0: <laughs> that impulse is really
1: impulsive. really helpful in almost every circumstance so uh, yeah and if people are looking to get, medita- getting, get started with meditation it can be a super nebulous like people can get very sanctimonious about their meditating stuff like just think about it as bringing your attention back to one thing you get distracted you bring it back you get distracted you bring it back to one thing and it can be any number of things that translates a lot to productivity and being effective throughout the day so you're not like oh my god i just spent 2 hours on facebook what, what the hell yeah. happened like to avoid that kind of experience just get an app like calm or headspace and start doing like 10 minutes a day headspace, 5 minutes okay. a day i'm going to try it yeah, it's really i really
0: i'd like to get yeah. more into the meditation um, it's
1: super super helpful and it just trains you to be able to calm and kind of come back to what you're supposed to be doing or what you want to be doing and you do that 10 minutes a day and it's especially once you get like 5 or 7 days straight it's amazing how something that neurologically or cognitively just clicks. After like five or seven days of doing it consistently, I do it first thing in the morning. Uh, you
0: do headspace? Or- uh,
1: I, I, I do transcendental meditation, transcendental, okay. so I just, I just kind of sit there and focus on my breathing. Like I did that before you guys got here. How long? And, uh, but I do that if you do that every morning for five to seven days, it's, it's really profound how much more calmly effective you are. And I've never been a big like, woo-woo meditation guy. I was right. like, eh, like, I'll just have a cup of coffee. It'll do me twice as good. Not true. Like 10 minutes in the morning will make you sort of calmly efficient. You'll get you know, 50% more done if you do that every day for a Ten week.
0: 10 minutes is not a lot of time. It's not a
1: lot. Yeah. Ten, my, my kind of magic number for me is 20 minutes, but don't start there because it's too much to yeah. start with. Start with whatever you're going to do, right? The right. baby steps. Start right. with whatever you're going to actually do. If that's three minutes, then do three minutes. If it's 30 seconds, then make it 30 seconds. But using app. I think like Headspace with guided meditation makes it a lot easier. Yeah. Just commit for, to doing it for a week or two. And uh, then it becomes self-perpetuating because you'll see the positive effects. Uh, but yeah, I think meditation, some type of m- mindfulness practice, plus practicing humiliation—yes, super potent, valuable combination. And quite frankly, the practicing humiliation—and nine times out of ten, you don't end up being humiliated—is uh, it's just fun. It's actually a good way. It is. It's a good way to to get laughs. And you can do it with your friends, too. Exactly.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Well, um, Tim, this has been great. I've got one last question I'm kind of dying to ask you, and then we'll we'll close. And that is, so I did read on, I think it was your Reddit Ask Me Anything, you talked about how you were interested in recruiting uh, Hollywood talent, whether it's directors or actors or et cetera, um, coupled with your interest in fiction writing. Yeah it sort of leads me to think that you're possibly writing like the next matrix or something cool. I'm <laughs> um, totally hoping to blow your cover here, yeah. but are you writing a cool is this uh,
1: uh, I am working on some screenplay stuff. Yeah. Awesome. So, you know, whether I it will be hope it's science
0: fiction. <laughs> yeah, whether
1: whether it will be cool or not is to be determined. But uh, you know, one of the main reasons I'm spending more time in Hollywood and spending more time with people who are very good at whether it's screenwriting, directing, fill in the blank, is because I want to start to absorb sort of the gestalt understanding of how that that whole machine and ecosystem functions, but I also just want to get to know people who are like the good guys and the good gals, you know, like the people who are not only really good at what they do, but like the cool people I could be friends with for 10, 15 years. So I'm spending more time down there and I'm not in a rush. Like I'd rather do it right than do it quickly. So
0: that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm taking
1: time. And honestly, for screenwriting, for books, for blogs, for podcasting, for whatever, I mean the the, the power for those people who have a direct audience is just it's growing by the day. So uh, making a movie the way I would like to make a movie, I think will just get easier. You know, six months from now it'll be easier than it is today. A year from now, it'll be much easier than it is today. Two years from now, it'll be even easier than it is today. And um, that's just very like exciting, science. Yeah, very like science. exciting, Tim. Just um, like science. Yeah.
0: I really enjoy talking to you. All as always. Um, thanks yeah, a lot for coming on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, most people know where to find you. You're yeah. pretty famous. But for those that don't, where can they find you?
1: Uh, they can find me at fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out. And uh, there are a million ways to misspell that. Which is, like, in <laughs> retrospect, oops, on me. But yeah, four is in the number four hour h hour, not O-U-R, 4hourworkweek.com, on Twitter, at T Ferris, with two R's and two S's, and then Facebook. I put up a lot of videos, like Q&A's and stuff, on Facebook. That's just facebook.com forward slash Tim Ferris, two R's and two S's. Awesome, Tim. Thanks a lot for uh, doing this. My pleasure. you. forward to talking to you again. Yeah, until next time.